just kidding. Happy Halloween. Welcome back to the ADR Podcast. I'm Brian Hamilton, and joining me on this very special Halloween episode of the show is Allison Truge. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Uh, you did very well on uh, our most recent episode, the Star Wars episode, <laughs> where you, me, and Kyle just kind of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We, we just kind of you know had some fun on the microphone and talked about the Star Wars trailer as we watched it. <laughs> I'm glad you decided to keep me. After that? Yeah. Why? I don't know. <laughs> well, the reason I wanted you on uh, this episode is because we're going to talk about Over the Garden Wall. My favorite. Which is, yes, your favorite. You're the person that got me into this for the very first time. I am. I remember when we first watched it, it was, uh, we didn't do it all in one sitting, right? Well, actually, I think that we did. You see, this is kind of the way that at least my kind of introduction to Over the Garden Wall happened, and I feel like a lot of other people's did as well, where like... It's this thing where it's like you watch it and you pass it on to other people that you think would enjoy it. Right, right. It's like The Ring almost. Right. You like, haven't seen The Ring, have you? <laughs> Brian. <laughs> uh, like the person who showed it to me first was my roommate, Jamie, who basically said, you really have to watch this. And I was kind of just like, eh, all right, I guess so. And by the first episode, I was immediately hooked. It, it is one of those things that really hooks you. Because once you see the first episode, you know whether or not you love it or hate it. It's incredible. Right. Uh, so we tend not to do spoilers on the show, but I want to ask you, uh, before we delve into very spoilery territory for the rest of the episode, uh, what would you say to somebody who has never seen the show before? How would you pitch it to them? How would you recommend it to them? I would say... I would try to pitch it so that there was literally as little I want them to I would want them to know as little about it as possible. Right, right. Cuz I feel like there's the, there's this like really incredible way that the details are revealed in Over the Garden Wall that you don't want to disrupt. Like I almost think putting any sort of setting on that show is kind of like improper. Because uh, I remember the first time that I watched it with you, you had a question that I hadn't even hadn't even occurred to me in the first episode that I think would have not spoiled it for me, but it would have nagged me more if I had had that question was um, it actually wasn't in the first episode, but the second when they're at um, the at Pottsfield. Mm hmm. Um, you said that there were, you noticed that he's, that <laughs> word opens the door where like the turkey's just got its head on the table. Cobble. Hashtag me. <laughs> but uh, no, like this turkey's on the table and we're kind of like, it, there's just like this little clip where he's, where he goes like, can we use your phone? And then there's this turkey and like you're automatically kind of distracted by the turkey. But you noticed that Wirt was looking for a phone and you were like, there's phones in this universe? And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I don't know, Bren. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. That's the thing. There's, I, rem I remember that because that was the first time I really thought, huh, wait, this is trying to base itself in some sort of reality. And as the show goes on, you start to learn what that reality is and what it really means for the characters in the show. And I think it's brilliant. You're right. It just very, very slowly kind of tricks you into suspending your disbelief in mm -hmm. a way that like, I mean, I'd, I take entire writing workshops, you know, where they, they're supposed to teach us how to do that. And the way that Over the Garden Wall does it is just so, like, you just accept it. It's just accepted. Like, I didn't, I think the best way to approach the show is by thinking to yourself, 
we're in this universe that I don't I don't have any expectations for. Right. Although right. also this is kind of like the other side of the coin where I think not having the ex well, I think having the expectation of being like, oh, over the garden wall, this is the first episode. Um, we're see- we see these two boys in the woods. Um, this is probably in like late 1800s, not late 1800s, but let's say like early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, okay, this is probably where we are. I don't really know exactly where we are. Maybe the 20s, maybe the 30s, maybe like early 30s, um, but probably something more like 1915 or earlier. Um, and then all of a sudden, they kind of bring in these details that make you think, oh, this is either anachronistic or I'm trying to be told that I can't trust this universe the way that Wirt and Greg also don't trust the universe. That's really fascinating. As much as, okay, I'm going to uh, jump into that rabbit hole with you for uh, for the rest of the episode, but I quickly want to plug how I pitch the show to people who haven't seen it. And I say, it's adventure time, but scary. What do you think of that? I think that's a really good one. I totally had a longer answer than that. <laughs> well, you can have a longer answer than that. That's the point. But... Way to show me up, Brian. <laughs> so... It's uh, Patrick McHale, who is one of the storyboarders on Adventure Time, correct? Yes. So he uh, he was a part of that world for a while, and that's really the crowning jewel of the Cartoon Network empire right now, except for maybe Steven Universe, which we need to talk about Well, at some it's, point. it's funny because, honestly, I really think about some of the cartoons, and honestly, just like not even cartoons, but just media that I've enjoyed consuming lately, and all of these people, like Rebecca Sugar and Patrick McHale, all come from Adventure Time. Yeah, they do. I just—it's so funny. It kind of reminds me of um, like Craig McCracken and Lauren Faust, like in that kind of era with like Samurai Jack and the Powerpuff Girls, like that kind of era of like old Cartoon Network that we grew up on. They were the ones where everything they touched turned to gold, and now it's kind of like shifted to the Adventure Time crew. It really has, and Over the Garden Wall is definitely my favorite offshoot of it. Um, Steven Universe notwithstanding, another episode. Uh, I feel like Adventure Time is really one of the best shows that's out there right now in terms of uh, how all of these people come together to create something that is enjoyed by so many people on so many levels. It's a cartoon and it's silly, but it's also really heavy and it teaches kids valuable lessons. I wish I had had Adventure Time when I was a kid. I don't think I would have understood it when I was a kid, but I definitely would have liked watching it. Right, right. So let's uh, fire off the spoiler horn and delve deep into what you were talking about, the universe of Over the Garden Wall that we're not supposed to trust. So the show starts off with all of these vignettes. The very first thing that we see is a frog playing the piano and singing. And then we get these really shadowy vignettes. Like they look like Nickelodeons, like traditional 20th century Nickelodeons that you put a nickel into and look into. And it was like shadowy film and it was beautiful. That's what these look like. So you think it's set, like you said, in the early 20th century roundabouts. But then as things go on, you really get the rug pulled out from underneath you. Because it's kind of like you meet all of these characters who could really belong to so many different eras. Like, especially when we get to John Cleese's character, um, oh, goodness, what was, it was... Auntie Whispers? No, Auntie Whispers was Tim Curry. Tim Curry, right. Um, no, John the Cleese. uncle. Yeah, yeah, uncle... Something or other. That, that's my least favorite episode in the show. <laughs> I, okay, we're, I'm going to disagree with you there, but I, 
man, as soon as you get there, <clears throat> it's kind of this thing where, like, yeah, I could believe that this old guy is living in this kind of, like, <clears throat> large Gregorian mansion, <laughs> like, in the 20th century. But you also could think to yourself, but this feels a little earlier than that. And then there's kind of this French Rococo style, which also kind of shifts in, like, a totally different era. And so these two kind of things meld together and you're like, okay, well, maybe I'm just not supposed to know when this is. And I think that kind of leads to, and again, this, you know, this is after the spoiler horn, but <laughs> um, spoiler alert, how, what I think that Over the Garden Wall is, is kind of an extended metaphor for purgatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like kind of having the mesh of all of these different eras put together really lends itself to that idea that there's like just kind of these snippets of life and they're just sort of meshed together in this sort of hodgepodge. Um, Definitely. And even like all of that notwithstanding, there's still the fact that you don't know whether or not these things are real. So in a very highfalutin meta sense, the creators can throw in all of those elements as much as they want to tell this weird fantasy story. And we're led to believe it's a fantasy story. Yeah. Because there's all these... Uh, animals talking and as magical. you said the first frame is a frog playing the <laughs> piano yeah. and you're like okay well I can expect this we that's get... one of the like moments when it's revealed this is what you can expect and it's funny because actually I would actually say like when we're talking on the level of realism like an animal actually playing like the piano and singing like that except for the um, episode which is my favorite the frog boat oh one. yeah the frog boat um, ex- with the exception of that episode <clears throat> we actually don't really get that far into like completely unbelievable territory you know what I mean I feel like the most unbelievable the show gets is with Auntie Whispers in episode seven, I believe. That's very true. It gets very Miyazaki for a second. Definitely. Uh, Especially because it's scary. And it's, let's face it, this is like a perfect fall Halloween show. It premiered uh, almost exactly a year ago. Sometime in October they did... um, Five nights, two episodes a night, ten episodes total, and uh, that's how the world got first got acquainted with Over the Garden Wall, even though, as we talked about, almost everyone that we know now has seen it all in one sitting, which I think is perfect. But uh, it's a scary show, so when you get something like the very first episode with the dog that's the beast, or not quite the beast, uh, you get this creepy dog, and that is still one of, I think, the scariest moments in the show when... Um, uh, Greg is in the barrel. You hear the snarling. Everything just goes pitch silent for a second. And then this dog with giant eyes and ferocious teeth just kind of looms over him. And you see dogs like that a lot. And the way the music is done is really next level. That's something that you wouldn't expect in a kid's show. <laughs> it's something you'd expect in like the best horror movies of the 80s. John Carpenter style, like creepy atmospheric music and this creepy dog looming over Greg. And that's what you come to expect. And I'd put that and the Auntie Whispers episodes, the scariest moments of the show. But Well, but also the Beast... When the beast is singing in the woods. I mean, maybe that's scarier for me now that I know that that's actually what he was doing. That makes sense. I feel like, for me, let's get into it then. The beast is the overarching villain of the show where um, the very first thing they learn about the unknown, which is where these two kids, Greg and Wirt, find themselves. The first thing that they learn is beware the beast. And 
only by the last like episode or two do you learn the true nature of the beast because uh, the entire time you get little glimpses of the beast, you uh, start to wonder what the beast actually is, what it means, and by the time you learn what it really is, you're so well acquainted with it that you know the eerie singing that he does, the operatic singing, you've heard the entire show. So it doesn't scare me as much as it unnerves me, especially after the like climax of the show towards the end when the beast really comes in its own and you get to see all the stuff he's capable of. So And then an- there's that flash of like his like just <laughs> like him fully lit. Mm-hmm. Oof. Mm-hmm. Oof. It's incredible. There's uh, that moment that you're talking about at the very end. Everything is not a single frame of the show is 100% lit. It's it's incredible that they got away with that. Well, I mean, it's a very cinematic experience. And one of the reasons that people really love it and are drawn to it is that it's just the artwork is just beautiful. Like there's no like there's no ignoring that. You can't really have an episode talking about Over the Garden Wall without talking about how beautiful it is. It really is. I mean, there's... and again, I sorry to interrupt you. I just I also think that that's also going back to the Miyazaki sort of tradition of like taking the level of animation that's kind of expected by say Cartoon Network and then saying, "No, this is what we're doing. We're upping it." Yeah, it's um it's cinematic, it's beautiful, it's weird. There's lots of matte paintings. Like, you can tell the things that are painted and the things that are animated, like, after the fact, computer-generatedly. That's not a word. Uh, but I feel like um, all of the stuff that they put into the show, like, there's no way to define it. And what blows my mind is that somebody came up with every single thing that you see on screen. So here we are trying to parse all of it, but somebody, Patrick McHale, I guess, has had all of that come out of his head and decide to um, put it on screen in a way that we're able to uh, we're able to enjoy. And we have to piece all of it together afterwards. And it's incredible that this ever came from one person. It's just funny to think of the board meeting where he was like, yeah, well, they're... They're pumpkins, like they're people pumpkins, but they're really skeletons. But the big one is a cat. They're really skeletons, you say? <laughs> Wait, the big one's a cat? Yeah. At the very, very end, when they're kind of doing like the uh, the afterword of the series, if you will, mm-hmm. um, the big pumpkin is shown, like everyone's having fun, doing their pumpkin skeleton thing, like mm-hmm. that creepy sh- stuff. And uh, <laughs> Thank you for saving me that edit. <laughs> um, that creepy stuff. And... Out of the pumpkin comes this little black cat. I have never noticed that. I know you haven't. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> see, see, that's the thing. I saw this show for the first time about a year ago, and even now I'm still picking up things. I watch it maybe once every other month, and it just kind of pops up. Well, especially, I think, as a person who works in publishing, uh, it's it's kind of... The show is just so literary. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, like, it has so many illusions... And I guess maybe more media does, and I just don't pick up on it. But I think, um, like, for instance, there are things that you pick up on the second time around. Like, for instance, um, when they're on the frog boat, I was talking to my sister about, like, the old ancient myth that, like, uh, when you would, like, bury your family members, you would put a coin under their uh, tongues that they could, like, pay to get into, like, the afterworld. And so the fact that... Wirt and Greg didn't pay on the ferry is really important because 
they they needed two cents, two pennies, and so that would have been one for each of them, and then not Beatrice because she like lives in purgatory. Um, as you can see, I'm a big fan of this uh, <laughs> this uh, retelling of Over the Garden Wall, but. You really um, are. It's incredible. But the the fact that they didn't pay to get on the ferry and so they didn't actually die, I think is super important. That's fascinating. So the way that the show, you, you brought up the second episode where I thought, wait a minute, there's phones in this? And like everything else made sense to me. But the fact that they threw in the phone line where he said, sorry, I'm looking for a phone. That's something that I was able to pick up on as, huh? wait, there's something going on that's weird here and you don't fully understand it until the end when it's revealed that they are in some sort of weird nether world. Well, I mean, it's also kind of revealed when they're in the tavern and Ward is singing about him and Greg and he says, he's my brother because my mom got remarried and had him with my stepdad. <laughs> I just, oh, that... One of my favorite jokes in the show. Yeah. No, I wouldn't even call it a joke. I think it's just, it's it's a mirror. It's like this thing where, like, I... Another thing that I love that people say about this show, and I'm not sure exactly who said it. Um, sure, it's somewhat important that I should know. But they said um, that... Over the Garden Wall is like a Miyazaki film for Americans, like for Americana with kind of a, um, what am I trying to say here? Like American culture in the same sensibilities that Miyazaki puts forth for uh, manga. Exactly. And so I'm saying like having uh, Wirt say, he's my brother because my mom got remarried and had him with my <laughs> stepdad. I'm like, it doesn't get more Americana, it doesn't get more Americana to me than that like not from an early 20th century point of view but just from where we are right now yeah i mean it was made in 2014 so it's a product of its time but all of the music in the show is so um uh it's so influenced by americana a lot of it is americana there's the uh song the working song they do in the second episode where it's like and there's guitar beautiful. oh thank you and there's guitar music playing and it's very like oh i'm working till the day is over da, da, da. and uh you get the harvest festivals it's very fall and i feel like fall is a very american construct because pumpkins and then of course the uh big uh event at the end of the show which is really the beginning of the show the train what's more american than the railroad <laughs> exactly yeah oh man you're right that's incredible that uh miyazaki for americans because uh it's so spooky but also very uh it's rooted in america and all the shots in the um in the ninth episode when they're in 1990s uh suburban america that is so uh indicative of you know american sensibilities the cassette tape the football game the mascots the just halloween kidding happy parties. halloween <laughs> <laughs> ah just kidding happy halloween oh man that's an incredible quote kudos to you for finding that and to whoever wrote that if you're listening <laughs> but yeah no i i love this show i just think it there's so much to dig through and so much to parse through. I, it's so literary. It really is. Do you want to go through episode by episode really quick and talk about the, the highlights from each? I think that's an excellent idea. Fantastic. Should we have an uh, episode list drawn up right now? Uh, I know them. Oddly enough. Okay. <laughs> okay, you're, uh, you're doubting me, but I am going to be able to recite all of the episodes from memory. I bet you that. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Connecticut. That's no episodes, not states. Oh. <laughs> so the first episode is where we're introduced to uh, Wirt and Greg and Beatrice and the um, 
the woodsman, who uh, in what I think is some of the clunkiest dialogue in the show, which makes me sad because all the dialogue is usually so musical. He explains what's going on in terms of the uh, the mill, what he's doing there. And I like the metaphor of lantern to bear yes. because, uh, or lantern to burn or whatever it is. But uh, the dialogue where he explains all of that, oh, I grind up the Edelwood trees. And uh, Christopher Lloyd, who uh, voices him very, very well. Uh, happy Back to the Future Day, everybody. <laughs> uh, he does a very good job of uh, embodying this character who's, tortured but also some kind of weird uh guide for greg and wurt i think the best suited guide honestly you mean by what he's wearing or no i hate you (laughs) no but like he's the one that knows the real extent of what the beast can do or at least the most that any character on the show knows right but why doesn't he tell them beforehand i wonder he warns them of the beast but he never actually does much to help them rather except for just like vague warnings here and there well i think this kind of also goes in line with an interpretation that i don't usually use for over the garden wall but um something that i kind of picked up was that the unknown was sort of a um sort of a metaphor for depression um Mm -hmm. and kind of the things that you go through and i think one of the kind of allures of the beast is that once it's inside of you, you can't really get it out. Right. You know, like, not that that's really how depression works, because that's wrong. (laughs) But it's one of those things where, like, maybe he was trying to keep them innocent of the beast so that it wouldn't infiltrate their minds or something to that effect. That makes sense. I mean, if he's living in this side, this parallel universe, um, I mean, the very end, like, the last line is like, and so that's a story and everyone's happy. But over the garden wall and then you see the epilogues of all the characters he's still living there the show bothers to tell us what happened to him inside this universe regardless of if it's real or not so his motivations are real and whether or not he wanted to keep greg and wirt from uh tackling the beast or having the beast uh attack him and that's the thing the the depression metaphor is such a thing now like the babadook which is very heavy uh on the metaphor of this is something that's in my life it is negatively affecting my life it's um up in the air whether or not it is quote unquote real or not and it's something that is rooted in fear and doubt and darkness and all of that kind of stuff well, I think also uh, a really apt description is uh, the woodsman in the woods burning the burning all of this wood that he chops down and finds. And the wood are all of these children <laughs> that <laughs> the woods has swallowed. And all he had to do was kind of realize that it didn't have power over him. Right, right. Every time I see that the kids are the trees in the end, I keep, like, I just got chills even saying it. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah. I keep forgetting that. And then, like, I never sit down to watch the show and realize the whole way through that the Adelwood trees are children. And I only realize that at the end, and I think, wow, that's heavy. And then I forget about it for the next viewing, and I just remembered it now. Especially because they're in the woods. It's so dark. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it actually reminds me, this is, like, maybe a non sequitur, but um, I, I did a lot of analysis of Into the Woods when I was in high school because it was one of my favorite musicals. Um, we actually, like, went over it in AP English. <laughs> and it was, like, it's this thing where uh, my teacher said something that was so simple that was just, like, the woods, it's, like, this place where you go in, and when you come back it's like you're different to milk the cow <laughs> to go yeah. to the festival i've only seen the movie with you once and it wasn't that good but i really want to well, see the musical. okay but the movie was not good yeah the movie was no i'm listeners I, I say, at home 
If you have only seen the cinematic version of Into the Woods, you must get thee to Netflix and watch the 80s Broadway recording on Netflix. To go to the festival. (sighs) So, that was episode one. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Episode two is where we meet... um, Oh my god, I know this. You just forgot. I just forgot. Viewers at home. Oh Brian my god. Hamilton has forgotten the episodes. It's Pottsfield. It's Pottsfield. Thank you. <laughs> I was put on the spot by your bet, Allison Truge. <laughs> oh my god. Pottsfield. How can I forget? It's one of my favorite episodes of the whole show. So they're uh, exploring. At this point, Beatrice is by their side um, where uh, Greg insists that she's going to give him a wish because she's magical, but she's not actually magical. And they... Uh, in the first of many quarrels about what to do, and that's probably my favorite like character-driven part of the show, is when Work Greg and sometimes Beatrice and sometimes Fred the Horse and all these people, they're deciding what to do. And in the first one in the show, uh, you have Wirt uh, resolved to go to Pottsfield and uh, Greg resolved to follow Beatrice. And they have this really great little dialogue where they uh, decide to finally go to Pottsfield. And then they're walking, they're walking, and they find Pottsfield, which is deserted. And there's this really great musical change where it's this nice uh, Americana ding, uh, fiddle and uh, slow kind of uh, bassy guitar in the background. And then things hit a sour note as soon as they realize that the town is deserted. Also, you uh, forgot to mention that on the way there, Beatrice kind of swoops down to Greg and is like, hey, let's ditch your brother. Yeah, I... Looking back and watching on uh, separate viewings and different viewings throughout uh, the year, I've noticed that Beatrice is really pushy about her ulterior motives. And I remember when it was revealed that she was like working for Adelaide in like a negative way. I remember how surprised I was the first time, but every single time since I've noticed it's uh, it's very ham-fisted. Yeah, especially because like you can you notice when he like. Greg frees her that she wasn't really stuck because she was like, great, now I have to do something for you. That's the bluebird rules. (laughs) Uh, So they find Pottsfield. There's the wonderful moment with the turkey that we talked about already at length. And then they find a creepy cult dance festival thing. And oh my God, one of the best lines, the pumpkin lady goes, aren't you a bit early? (laughs) Oh. I, I thought, that's what I thought. So it, it ends up at the end of this episode, you learn that they're all skeletons. Well, the thing is that this is the really disturbing part is that you would think to yourself, you look at these children and they're clearly like not skeletons, which me- leads me to believe that they're actually not all skeletons. They're just all dead. Oh, hang on. Isn't that disturbing? That's re- I never thought about it that way before. So you think that inside those pumpkins, even though at the end of the episode we see them dig up two more skeletons for the party, and like, hey, you dug up the life of the party, that there are some in there that are not necessarily skeletons, but other decaying parts of the I human just, anatomy? I would just wonder why that that sh- that she pumpkin would, uh, would wonder why they were there. Because she said, you're not ready to join us yet. Huh. It was clear that they are not skeletons. Right. So it wasn't like a shun the non-believer because they were obviously not skeletons, but huh. Right. That's creepy. Yeah, I don't, I could I could be wrong about that, but th- I just that just occurred to me. That gives even more meaning to the end when uh Ernok, Elnrock, 
I don't know. They say his name once, and I can never remember it. But uh, when the grand old pumpkin in the center, uh, when he says, you sure you don't want to join us? What would he have done if they had said, yes, we want to join you? Probably killed him and buried him and waited for them to be skeletons. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> This is a kid's show, everybody. Oh, man. That's one of my favorite episodes because it turns up the uh, creepiness factor because uh, uh, things get really dark inside the um, inside the barn where they end up locking them in. Like, let's leave now. And then two people close the doors and you're, oh, okay, great. Well, and it also, like, if you, if any viewer had any kind of notion that maybe um, normal things were going to happen in this universe, they're like, well, no. Yep. And again, that goes back to the Adventure Time thing, where they can create whatever the hell kind of uh, mythos they want, because it's a completely new thing. But they're trying to root this in some kind of reality. Well, they root it in some kind of reality by showing what Greg and Worth's reactions to these like stimuli are. Right. Like when you think of Adventure Time, like Finn and Jake, Finn isn't usually surprised by what they find, like. In, in the way that Wirt was about Beatrice talking. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think they show it's normal through Greg and Wirt. Like, yeah. Wirt is supposed to be the straight man. They're an analog for the audience in that case because we would be wondering where our phone was and we would be wondering why a blue, bluebird was talking. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, brief tangent. For me, Halloween is the season of My Chemical Romance's 2007 album, Welcome to the Black Parade. So, like, once a year, I, I really don't listen to My Chemical Romance anymore like I did back in high school, but... Uh, He's lying. But uh, every... Once a year, I will go back and listen to it because it's so moody and atmospheric, and I remember the album came out in an October uh, 2007, and it was so creepy and dark, and all of the music videos were so on point with all their skeleton makeups and things. So the one moment in this episode that reminded me a lot of that was when they're digging up the skeletons and they look off in the distance and they see a big procession of all the people with banners and the big old pumpkin guy walking through. And there's this weird, it's not upbeat, but it's not downbeat either. It's very, we are here, we are creepy, and we are about to show up and do some stuff here. Uh, that's the kind of music that plays. And it reminds me a lot of that because of how in your face it is. And then one of my favorite other little jokes in the show is uh, they're off in the distance and then a split second later, they're right next to uh, Wirt and Greg. <laughs> yeah. What else? Episode three is next. Uh, that is the schoolhouse episode that is so Ooh! famous. A is for the apple that it gave to me. But I found the worm inside. Fun fact, if you've seen the show, they only really put in uh, like a few seconds of that song in the show. There exists, we'll put a link in the show notes, a full like three minute version of that song where she goes through the entire alphabet complaining about and, Jimmy Brown. And then, listeners at home, and then she goes on to doing numbers <laughs> and it is revealed through the lyrics. Um. What What is What are the lyrics? It's like it's uh. One, one is a number of men I loved, and two is the times I'll say it's you. It's you. So that's like two times, and then three, three is, is the, the number, number of, of days, days you've been, been gone. gone. <laughs> but it feels, feels like, like four, four times, times two. two. So the is difference between you think to yourself that Jimmy Brown has been gone for a while. He has been gone for three days. <laughs> Literally three days. Has found a job in a circus, <laughs> and and. 
got stuck in the gorilla costume. Oh, that must be a smelly gorilla costume after that. How much do engagement rings cost in this universe is what I want to know. More than two cents. Ooh. Ooh. I see I see you, Brian. <laughs> so this is the wonderful episode where things take a turn for the light for once. Uh, because you have this really cute schoolhouse uh, for destitute animals. Like all of no, not all of the animals, but the animals inside the uh, schoolhouse are all dressed up prim and proper in early twentieth century like uh, bonnets and kind nice of really like things. What you would see in a book. Yeah, like what you would expect Little House on the Prairie people to wear. Right. Um, and you have uh, this really cute, iconic scene from the show where uh, Greg sings a song about potatoes and molasses. It's so cute. It's so cute. And I, like, it's, it, it reminds me of like, uh, if you had like ever like a, a little toy record player it reminds me of a record, like a song on a record that you would play on your little toy record player and like dance around to when you were three. It's, um, you have the wonderful marching band elements of kids' songs where you get horns in the background going do 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 and um, the lyrics are all very rhythmic and uh, very deliberately sung. And it's, it's cute because Greg is actually played by like a 10-year-old. Yeah, no, and it sounds like a child is singing. Like he's trying to reach into his higher register and not doing so well. Yeah. But it works perfectly. And then it's interrupted by father. By father. Who and comes the- in and he's just like, I thought we were doing important work, teaching animals to, <laughs> to spell and read. Oh, man. So this show is episodic. There are 10 episodes. Um, each of them has more or less one little arc. And it's usually resolved by the end of this episode. Two things. One, this one feels the most out of place to me. And as much as I love this episode, it really never comes up again. And B, we've talked so much this entire time about how dark the show is. This is one of the cutest things ever. Like, yeah. Ever, not even just in the show, which it is, but ever. Well, I would disagree with you that it's that it sticks out. Well, I mean, it does stick out. But I disagree that it doesn't fit in because I think it really serves to characterize Wirt and characterize Greg and especially their dynamic with each other which we get a lot of kind of in the first couple episodes or so but I I really love this kind of snippet of Wart's like really stubborn nature that we get and kind of his back and forth with Beatrice which kind of like I don't know I I don't know if this is like a thing that's real or not but like you think to yourself like huh if Beatrice was human I'd ship it I I did ship it for a while as I was watching this for the first time there's there's that episode uh later on in um uh, in the mansion where they're talking in the uh, the cupboard and sharing secrets with each other. Like, oh, wait, I would like this if uh, she was human. Yeah, exactly. And it was really nice. Um, we can get to that when we get to that. We'll though. get to that when we get to that. Uh, so Potatoes and Molasses, uh, this episode, Jimmy Brown was the gorilla. <laughs> and uh, it, it it's not that it doesn't fit in, because it definitely does. And Wirt and Greg and Beatrice are definitely a focus of the show, but a focus uh, you don't really get a lot of the other things uh, throughout the show because everything else is really dark and creepy. And this is way lighter in a way. And I don't, it's not that it doesn't fit because it fits in with all the Americana stuff and all the really wonderful whimsical elements, but it feels like such a tonal departure. I th- the other like most light uh, part of the show is episode eight with um, Cloud City, which we can talk about when we get there because that's controversial. 
uh, I I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it more critically, it's it's difficult to watch this again because it's great, but it still sticks out to me. I think it reminds you that like this show is at its core very cute. Yeah, because I think it is. Candy camouflage, he says, as there's a creepy wolf about to eat them. Exactly. Exactly. I think this episode serves to, like, be this sense of charm that really keeps the momentum of the show going. Right. And makes it, honestly, Cartoon Network appropriate, Mm -hmm. I would say. That's true. If they had gone any further than, say, anti-whispers, it probably couldn't have been on Cartoon Network. Episode four is uh, Songs at the Tavern, right? Yeah. Songs at the Tavern. Oof, I have so many ideas about this episode. So tell me them. Uh, First of all, summarize the episode briefly and then tell me what you think of it. Um, So in this episode, they're lost and they come across this tavern uh, and Beatrice goes, work, go in and ask for directions. And they all go in to ask for directions, but uh, Beatrice is, like, shoved out because the tavern lady goes, no bluebirds in here. Bluebirds are a symbol of good luck. They bring joy to people. Get out! (laughs) Yeah, and then Beatrice kind of curses her. Mm -hmm. I curse you. I give you a bluebird curse. But then Wirt and Greg are in there trying to get directions, but everyone is singing and talking about their occupations. This is one of those episodes where it's very self-contained and they meet people that you never really meet again. And it's important. The it's- ensemble in this sh- in this like in this episode alone, like if you've seen the entire like 100 minutes of this, you still know all of the people that were in that tavern. I'm the highway man. <laughs> I make ends meet. Uh, we get little songs, like literally, literally forty-second songs from each of these people. You have um, not forty seconds. No, they're they're short. The Highwayman couldn't have been more than a minute. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think so. We each get like this kind of snippet of what they all do, and then it kind of comes down to they ask Wirt, "Well, who are you?" And Wirt was like, "I'm just a guy." Yeah, cool. Because everyone else there goes by their occupation. There's the highwayman. There's the barkeeper. There's the uh, cobbler, the master and apprentice. There's the cake baker. Well, I think this is where I'm going to get into my analysis of this. I think it actually really kind of supports the idea of the depression metaphor, because uh, I think it kind of they cling to this kind of identity in order to keep themselves from the beast, because all of them know of the beast and they're all very afraid of the beast. Right. And so all of them. It, this is. Uh, I think my sister found this on Reddit and kind of told me about it because <laughs> we all know that Reddit is the truth. Um, that the reason that they're also kind of like gung ho about what they do in their lot in life, it's because then they won't be consumed by sadness and like resort to the beast. That's fascinating. I've never heard this. We've watched it with your sister and we've never talked about this before. I have secrets from you, Brian. <sighs> I don't tell you everything. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah, so we get these wonderful moments from these people, and I really like that analysis uh, because they all do know of the Beast, and they, again, there's all of these people around to warn Wart and Greg about the Beast and not to, uh, you know, talk to the Beast at all. And so uh, they move on, they escape, not even, not escape, they're just uh, trying to get out of there, they're... uh, uh, Greg has found a no I'm sorry Wirt has found a newfound identity as the pilgrim uh, who is in love and we learn more about that love later in the show but there's uh, they they just keep going on they grab a horse who is Fred the talking horse and uh, ride on into the next episode 
which is episode five when they end up at the uh, spooky mansion. Uncle Endicott. Endicott. That, that's his name. That's who John Cleese plays. Uh, uncle Endicott, who is not actually their uncle, which they establish. And this is what confuses me the most. How did they get in there? This is the coldest of the cold opens in the show. Well, I, I don't think we're supposed to know how they got in. Well, I mean, the, the episode opens up with them sitting at a table. I just imagine, like, knocking on the door. Greg knocks on the door, and uh, Endicott kind of opens, and Greg just kind of like, la, 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 like, just dances in. That's <laughs> what I want to believe happens. That's in your head canon. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know. I, what doesn't make sense to me is that uh, Wirt is still unsure of the plan. Okay, but he's not still unsure of the plan. No, he's there. He's like... It was exposition. It was exposition, but it was still... He's going, wait, what are we doing? He's not actually our uncle. And then Beatrice says, well, of course he's not. We're going to steal his money. I don't think we should analyze this too much. I don't know. It, that's the one thing. This is why this is my least favorite episode of the show, is because not much happens in terms of the plots. We're, we're um, built up this whole time with the expectation of a ghost in one of the parlors. Uh, which is creepy, admittedly, and that fits right in with the Halloweenness of what I want the show to be. Uh, but it ends up being a weird thing about tea and really, really rich people. And they accidentally built their houses into each other, even though they're from two completely different eras of it, design. It's like Prison Architect, but two people playing Prison Architect at the same time. And no? You need to stop it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the thing of most value in this episode to me is uh, Wirt and Beatrice in the cupboard, rummaging about, looking for money, uh, trying to uh, trying to find money, but then they talk a lot about what they are and what they're doing and how they feel, which is great. Which uh, reveals that Beatrice was once human. And that is the big twist. Well, it's not even the big twist, but... Um, I kind of, I don't know, I expected that the entire time. Me too. And I can't tell you why I did. It's like she knew what waffles were because Greg goes, uh, do you eat waffles? No, I eat maggots. Ah, how could you not eat waffles? Uh, you get that moment. You get um, this moment of uh, there's one point, I forget when, but it's uh, Beatrice saying, well, in some ways I'm trying to get home too. And that screamed to me, I'm trying not to be a bluebird anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, but like this moment of them kind of in the closet together and they're like kind of talking about stuff and making each other feel better about their like situations. It's just, I ship it. I do. I really do too. Especially because at this point, like we kind of know a little bit about Sarah, I think. Like we get kind of snippets about Sarah, but we don't know anything about Sarah yet. So right. we have no allegiance to the idea of Wirt, shipping Sarah, Wirt and Sarah being a shippable pair. Right, right. So this leads into episode six when they're on the frog ferry, which is, it's your favorite episode, right? Yes, it is. I can't tell if it's my favorite or not, but it's definitely up there. It it's is. incredible. It's your favorite. Um, so this is another one of the really light episodes where things take a very posh 20th century turn where everyone's dressed in these nice clothes and uh, there's a band playing. They're riding down this nice ferry with the big old wheelie thing. And as a nerd who in high school played the bassoon, I... I just, I can't have any other favorite episode because Wirt finds himself playing the bassoon while they're running away from the boat police. Oh, but the fingering is totally different. And I guess if you uh, change the registers, they uh, end up matching up. Wirt, do it! He talked about the embouchure, Brian. <laughs> Plebe. Wow, okay. I didn't play any instruments in high school, but sure, I'll tell you that. Uh, they're also all frogs. I don't know if we mentioned that. They're literally yeah, all frogs. all of them are frogs. <laughs> Except George Washington, who is Greg's frog who is naked. Yes. Uh, 
they are chased by the boat police and they're not police on other boats but they are the police on the boat that they are on because they didn't pay to get into the afterlife they didn't uh going off of your old theory where uh uh, they didn't pay the two cents. Well, everything after that moment when they get off the boat and they haven't paid, everything gets dark and winter. Oh, that's right, because it's uh, Auntie Whispers, Cloud City flashback ending. Yeah, no, we don't meet anyone new. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. That's interesting. Except that for really the fish fishermen. Oh, I love the fishermen. Fish. Cannibal. <laughs> um, so... The what makes this episode so special to you? Is it the music? Is it the relationship? For what me, is it? it's the music. The music really just like sells me. And also we get the title like lyric in this one and George Washington sings. <laughs> it's just it's everything that I could ever want from a cartoon is in this one. It's so sweet too. It really truly is. It reminds me a lot of Steamboat Willie. I mean like they do a lot of classic things in the show, but this one especially with the static camera and the chasing and all of the gags where they return to different places on the boat different times running through things and the practically silent episode too. Like no one talks but uh Greg Wharton Beatrice. Yeah. Which is incredible. None of the frogs talk. Yeah. Uh, it was very uh, Steamboat Willie and very, very cute. Uh, we also get, I keep forgetting this is the episode when it happens, but this is when we finally meet Adelaide. Yes, it is. At the very end, um, we get the actual realization of what's really happening. Uh, and at the very beginning of the episode, when they're on the boat, there's a moment where uh, Beatrice is sad and Greg goes, or Wart goes, oh, come on, why are you so sad? We're going to Adelaide. This is fun. Yeah, I guess. And we learn something is up. Like, we get the sense that something is up. And I thought that she was just sad that they would be departing. But then she runs into Adelaide's office, office, a cottage. And Her so, office. <laughs> uh, step into my office. Beatrice, we really need you to come in on Saturday. Always be bluebirding. Uh, <laughs> so we end up, uh, she, she flies in and says, you can't take these children. They're good. And we think, oh, God, What? And like with that one line, we learn the horrible stuff that uh, Adelaide has in store. And I think it's brilliant. Yeah. No, it's it's also like Adelaide isn't quite as scary as we're led to believe, but her cottage is. And then all of a sudden she like kind of snaps her fingers and then all this yarn comes down and encaptures Word and Greg, who unwittingly have followed Beatrice. Because mm-hmm. otherwise they wouldn't have known because Beatrice just wouldn't have brought them. Exactly. I don't know. I feel like the... Um, uh, I I really wasn't led to believe how scary Adelaide was because I I wanted her to be like she's the good woman of the woods. Every time they say her name, there's little chimes in the background. So the fact that she is as creepy as she is is really surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, what else? We should keep going because we're like 40 minutes in and <laughs> we don't want to uh, take too long for this. And I really want to spend a lot of time with you on the la- end of the show. Yeah. Uh, but they get out of Adelaide's place. Uh, Wart, Wart, Greg, no. I get the two mixed up so often. Yeah. I don't know why. They're such different names, they but are. I don't know. Uh, Wirt is upset at Beatrice for all the stuff that she did. And so they march forward to uh, another little cottage where they uh, try to find shelter in episode eight, uh, the ringing of the bell. And this is where we meet. Uh, what is the girl's name? Lorna. Lorna, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lorna. Lana, you've... I keep uh, thinking it's Lana, but it's just Tim Curry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Horse brutality. That's a Rocky Horror joke, kids. So they they meet Lorna in the house, and the way she speaks is unlike any other character in the show. 
because she's like British. She's British. She talks in these really wonderful colloquialisms. She sounds like a Neil Gaiman character. <laughs> she you... also like is kind of dressed like a pilgrim. She really is. My favorite little bit of dialogue that she has is uh, "Come out, my turtles." Because they're in the turtle thing, but she's they're they're her turtles, and it's really cute. But we can't reject talking about Auntie Whispers. Auntie who is Whispers, right out of a Miyazaki. Oh movie. my god, uh, what character from a Miyazaki movie does Auntie Whispers remind you of the most? Uh oh god, from Spirited Away. The uh the woman with the big old eyes, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Th- that runs the whole place. I keep forgetting her name. Me too. I don't remember but any Miyazaki names. I just can we talk about something though? Yeah. What's you up? know how the dog eats the turtle mm-hmm. and the dog turns into this kind of like beast. Mm-hmm. Auntie Whispers eats the turtles. Yes. What does she look like when she's not eating turtles? I have no idea. This is, is what incredible. I want to know. These are questions I have for Patrick McHale. <laughs> That's amazing. You're right. It's like I never thought of it. Oh my god! Wait, she eats the turtles. Yeah. Huh. Brilliant. Yeah. Nice. We, we just high fived. <laughs> I like how we both felt the need to say to people that we high fived. Well, we want people to know we like each other. We like each other. So, Auntie Whispers is it, it, one of my favorite things in media in general. There's a moment like this in Paper Mario. Remember Paper Mario on N64? I never played Paper Mario. Paper Mario was so good. The first one, not the other ones. Anyway, um,. It's where we're led to believe that there's this really creepy person showing up, and I love the panic of having to hide from this person that's about to show up. And uh, Lorna says to Greg and Word, okay, hide, hide, hide. Auntie Whispers is coming back. And you, Auntie Whispers, ooh, what's that? So they're hiding, and I love that moment where there's the panic of needing to hide. There's the near discovery. She, uh, Auntie Whispers says, oh, Lorna, you've, uh, you have children here. Yeah, they shall soon die. Like, oh, God. Oof. And you're like, oh, no, she's going to eat them. Mm-hmm. What we don't know is that Lorna would eat them. Yay! I just, oh, you know how I was saying earlier that, like, I just love the, like, way that they reveal details in this show? Yeah. That's just, oh, to me, that was the most satisfying way to reveal that. Because, like, I wasn't expecting that in the least. Me neither. It, it totally subverted what I wanted or needed from that episode. It turns out that uh, Lorna is the one... Is, Auntie Whispers is the one keeping Lorna from uh, eating people, and she makes jokes about, oh, they will soon be eaten if we're not careful. Ha ha ha. Like, as if she's about to eat the children, but no, it's actually ghost creepy Lorna who, uh, if she doesn't have the bell... Uh, or does not have somebody commanding her with the bell, ends up uh, turning into a possessed demon, and it's really creepy. Also, if you really like listen to that episode, uh, what she's doing when she finds Wirt and Greg is she's coming up and she's like, I have sorted through the bones. She was downstairs sorting through the bones of all of her past victims wow. when she met them. Oh, God. <laughs> which, Things Brian doesn't notice. Which makes their... Because you talked about shipping these romances. Uh, though, like again, minute and a half long song that they share together is really sweet. It really is. It's one of my favorite bits of music in the whole show. And she's going to eat him. She's going to eat them. And it's wonderful. (laughs) Well, she doesn't know she will, though, because she's possessed by a demon. That's true. Uh, So they exercise the demon by shaking George Washington, who has eaten the bell, and it's really cute and clever. Um, And this is one of the scariest moments in the episode because in my uh, of the uh, sound. All of the, like... 
exorcist style uh like whispering like this but then also whispering like this layered on top of each other Every, oh man it's so good yeah um so they do that and it's i don't feel like it's long enough i the little shocking terrifying moments of the show make those terrifying moments way more poignant i wish there were more of them but if there were it wouldn't be as special that they did that. Yeah. I mean, also the thing that we can think about after this is that like, you know, they have, I, I actually was wrong earlier when I said they got off the boat and then it's kind of winter and they don't meet anyone else because they do meet Lorna. Right. But this kind of like interesting thing happens where all of a sudden now that Beatrice betrayed them, it's this thing of like, well, who do we trust? Exactly. And it's like, we don't trust Auntie Whispers. We only trust Lorna. But then it's like, you can't trust Lorna either. It's just a very interesting flip of the dynamic because even when the setting is more unsure, we knew who we we thought we knew who we could trust. Exactly. Cloud City. I hate this episode. This is one of my favorite episodes. It wasn't when I first saw it. You but you you talk. Okay, so this is when Wirt is extremely depressed uh, because they don't have anybody they could trust. They thought they could trust Beatrice. They couldn't. They thought they could trust Lorna. They couldn't. So here he is. It becomes winter. Uh, things are It's snowing, and we see them sleep for the first time in the show. And they uh, lie on the... Um, uh, they lie on this tree. They cover themselves up with, uh, with leaves. Wirt wants to give up. And Greg is feeling really optimistic still because he's Greg. And he's uh, in his very childlike, whimsy voice. No, it's okay. We'll find a plan in the morning. And it's really cute. And then they go to sleep. And the clouds part. Angels sing. And a bunch of little child cherub angels come down to beckon the spirit of Greg up to Cloud City. Wherein he's welcomed to Cloud City by three separate welcome committees. Uh, there's the Cloud City Reception Committee, there's the Auxiliary Reception Committee, and the uh, Hippopotamus Draft Monkey Committee number three. And then there's a fourth committee, but he's like, that's enough. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, this is all done in the style. We, we mentioned Steamboat Willie earlier. This is literally a ripoff. Not ripoff. A loving ripoff, for the lack of a better word. Homage. Thank you, Brain. Uh, uh, to classic Disney animation because it's very uh, big, childish, uh, silly animals singing to the camera, who is uh, Greg at this point. And uh, all the animations are very repetitive, if that makes sense. So, like, they're there. They're, like, bouncing up and down and doing the same things in loops. And you don't need to do that in 2015, but they intentionally do that for the feel of classic Disney. Right. Uh, you've been very silent. You told me to talk, but you don't like this episode? I just don't. Uh, I've, I've gotten to appreciating it more because of what happens later. But I just... Uh. That's what breaks my heart. So I feel like the th my theory on this, which is, I, I think, pretty well like received, right? People think this is the case, that everyone's dead. I, I don't know if it's well received, but I think that's a pretty consummate guess. So this is Cloud City, and this is the point where they're giving up. Or at least uh, Wirt is giving up, and it uh, looks like Greg is about to freeze himself to death because they're literally frozen, uh, falling asleep. And... All of these children invite him into the clouds, and they're all angels, and everything is perfect up there. I, 
it's all very childish. It's what it reminds me of like if God created a waiting room for all of the sick children who are about to die, this would be it. Well, I mean, here's the thing though. They're welcoming him into the city, but they're not he's not dying because they're in this kind of netherworld and when he has like a wish that like the big like woman in the sky asks him, he says, I want to go home. And so he was going to go home. But what did the cloud city spirit grant him when uh, he said, I want to go home a visit with the beast. That actually never clicked with me before now. Cause he says, uh, um, Oh, I have my wish then. <laughs> Are you sure? Okay, then. And the next thing you see of him, the literal next thing you see is him walking off with the beast while Greg is turning into an Adelwood tree. Or Wirt is turning into an Adelwood tree. Well, no, he's not turning into the Adelwood tree anymore. I thought that what was happening was he wished for Wirt to be saved. But he wasn't because he was turning into an Adelwood. Well, he was, but he wasn't when he woke up because he woke up. Well, he woke up, but that's... He wouldn't wake up if he was turning into an Adelwood tree. So you think there was a compromise between... Greg and the Beast. No, well, yeah. No, yeah, that's exactly what I think happened. For Greg's sake. Yes. Huh. For Wurt's sake. Wurt's sake. Thank you. I, single syllable names. Come on. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I, I still like the theory that this is a, a place where all the dead children go. Because he is young, even for people in the, uh, in the unknown. And it's all lost children, as we learn later, that are dead and turning into these trees. He's still young, even for that. Yeah. So, I don't know. I still... What really gets me is... um, So, when he's in Cloud City, the entire thing is this big musical moment where everyone is singing and dancing. It's all very cohesive and very nice. There's a lyric in the middle where all of these very obviously real little children say something along the lines of, like, Everything is fine here. We always have the most magical time. Hitch a ride to Cloud City, something like that. And it reminds me a lot of like, I haven't seen Pinocchio in years, but it reminds me a lot of like that kid colony in Pinocchio where they're having a blast, but everything is actually horrible because they're dead or something along those lines. They're not actually dead in Pinocchio, I don't think. I haven't seen Pinocchio in too long of a time. Me too. That's Cloud City. We could probably do a whole episode on Cloud City just debating. You, you could do a whole episode on Cloud City. I'm really done with Cloud City. Into the Unknown is what they call Episode 9, which is interesting because Episodes 9 and 10 are called Into the Unknown and The Unknown. And they are in the place they're in is called The Unknown. So it like it's like when they sing the lyrics over the garden wall in Episode 6. You're like, oh, this is important then. Well, I mean, I actually think it makes a lot of sense because episode nine is all the exposition we should have got in episode one. Right, right. They go into the unknown. If we were doing a lot, if we were watching something that was a lot less skilled in storytelling. Right. Um, So going into the unknown, that's like all of the exposition. That's just telling us like this is all the exposition you needed. And then the unknown is their result. Right. So this is where we see... Uh, Wirt actually putting on his costume. He uh, he's wearing this. Uh, he was a gnome. Yeah, he was a gnome. Well, yeah. I feel like um, my favorite little detail is when he finds the costume and it's a literal Confederate soldier outfit. Yeah. And he like finds the head. Goes ah no, throw that away. But I'm gonna take this cape, which is very nondescript. And I think that's great. And he takes his Santa hat, cuts it off, and becomes a gnome. And he's like yes. He looks in the mirror and says yes. This is my Halloween costume because I am a Halloween person. And it's like. Cool, good for you. 
Um, and then we learn that Greg is an elephant. Because he has a teapot on his head. And look at his trunk. It's funny because up until that point, I remember seeing that and being like, why didn't I question that Greg had a teapot on his head? <laughs> Literally not a thing I even thought about, You Brian. really don't question it. It's no. great. Um, and we learn that uh, Wirt has a huge crush on this girl named Sarah, who is a school mascot. And he's scared that Jason Funderburger is going to ask her out first. And then um, they, uh, Greg and Wirt encroach on this uh, witching hour seance thing and run away out of embarrassment. And the police who say, just kidding, happy Halloween, and go literally over the garden wall because they're in the eternal garden. Uh, that's what they call the cemetery. And after that, they fall into a lake after being narrowly missed by a train, Americana. And the episode ends with black like shapes floating. And you can tell it's the water now after seeing that they're in water. But those are the first few frames of the first episode after the vignettes. Right. And it's it's brilliant. Like this episode still gets me every time I watch it but when I show it to people for the first time they realize oh god this is a life or death situation now it's like this entire time we've just been kind of enjoying their story and all the while they're drowning they are literally drowning yeah Yeah. now what do you think about this episode's placement in the run it's completely self-contained it could have been placed first it could have been placed last I think it's placement is absolutely perfect why Uh, it's just Oh, man. Again, it all goes back to one of the reasons I really love the show is the way they reveal these details. And knowing this right before the end just makes everything click. And then all of a sudden, now you're ready to go into the unknown because you actually know the stakes now. Mm -hmm. They only reveal the stakes when it's absolutely necessary to know what they are. Because if we were stressed from the very beginning that they're drowning, then it would get kind of tiresome. Can you imagine like knowing that Greg is drowning while he's singing potatoes and molasses to a bunch of animals? Exactly. Like it, it's completely different. And they, they isolate that from us until the end. So at the very least, we know that, well, for, for Wirt, his high school crush is a life or death situation, which I think is brilliant because they don't need to justify any of what he feels. He's a, he's what, 16? He said he's 16. He's 16 years old. That's, of course, what you're going to be worrying about in life. It is a life or death situation for 16-year-old kids. Yeah, I just, I love this episode. I think it's absolutely perfect. The details are great. You look at uh, Wirt's desk, and he's got, like, a bunch of <laughs> textbooks on it, like, about uh, French Rococo design. Like, that's why, how, or it's, it's an interior design textbook, which is why he knows all about the interior design at Endicott's mansion. And, I never noticed that. That's amazing. Uh-huh. And there's also a tape recorder, and there's a clarinet, I think. Um, and I think there's actually a train set, which is another detail Ooh, I noticed. Wow. Yeah. That's heavy. I know. Uh, I like the music that plays. It sounds very Pearl Jam, even though I know you don't like Pearl Jam. I wish it was more The Shins. Well, I I think that the music was actually perfect. There's I mean, it's no perfect, yeah. there's no musical choice on this show that I question. Right. It f- it felt very 90s still because they're still using cassettes. Well, also I think it's kind of nondescript 90s. You don't know exactly when it is. That's true. I don't know. I I still wish like. It could have been the Smiths or something that were uh, that were playing just because I love the Smiths, but yeah. well, but I like <laughs> I like that it's like it could be ninety three, could be ninety five, could be ninety six. Yeah, I like that. I really like that too. It's uh, it's very cute. It's very sweet. But then as things just keep ramping up, can we just talk about? I love this detail, and it's just so unexpected, honestly, because you think about like how 
insecure Wirt is about Sarah rejecting him. And then you kind of like go into it and like, I mean, one of the funniest things about this show is that Jason Funderburger is a total, total dweeb. Hey, Sarah. But even funnier than that, they go to this party where Sarah is because they need to get this cassette tape back. And Greg just runs in and Wirt's like, but I wasn't invited to this party. And he goes in and everyone's like, oh, hey, Wirt. Like really happy to see him. Yeah. Like, oh, I I was wondering if you were coming. I just I thought that was like such a cool detail because it really subverted what I what I assumed about work. Right. Well, you you learn that like like even though this is a very dire thing for him to get back that embarrassing cassette for Sarah, which by the way we have the real replica of, we need to find a tape recorder to listen to it. Yeah, we do. Um so we have that and we need to even though Wirt is completely blind to the fact that Sarah does like him back. It's still like nerve-wracking for him to be there and for us to watch him be there. Half of me wants to yell at him, "Just kiss her. She likes you." But part of me is like, "Oh, Wirt, I'm so sorry. You 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 got this. Just work up the confidence. You're it's a like gnome now." It's like being back in high school and seeing your friends interact, just being like, "Just kiss already." Oh my god. Wow. It's it it hits all of the notes. Yes. But as things keep ramping up, see, here's the thing. I I love where it is, and I love now that we know the stakes. But when it comes to like over the garden wall as a cohesive whole, I wish there was more of this episode, and almost like how I wish there were more like terrifying moments, like Auntie Whispers, because I love the um, it, I I love them. But if there were too many of them, it, they wouldn't be as special. And that's I a would, metaphor for the entire show because... It's like this whole... There's this real part of me that's like, ah, oh, I would watch a whole prequel about, like, where this show was. Or, like, an after the fact, almost. Right. Like, like, a se- like, not a season two, but kind of, like, a where they ended up. But also, it'd be like, that'd be so meaningless. What would that be about? You Everything know? that Over the Garden Wall is about, they nailed. Exactly. It is there in those ten episodes, and if there were any more, it wouldn't be as special to us. Right. Oh, man. Last episode. And as much as I want to get into all of the nitty gritty of all the philosophical things, we've done that a lot already. We really have. I was actually thinking, I don't really know what I have to say about this episode. Uh, This is the climax of the show where um, uh, Beatrice is looking for them again. She wants to save them. She wants them to be okay. They reconcile. Uh, Greg is with the Beast and... Fulfilling all of these little riddles. Yeah. So like... Oh, you got the golden thread or something. Oh, it's just a spider web. Oh, uh, you've got... I forget what the other things are, but the the one big thing is lower the sun into this china cup. This really reminded me of Into the Woods, these oh, yeah. like little riddle challenges. I was like, oh, it's like the witch. <laughs> it's great. If only Meryl Streep were the beast. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, so I love the dichotomy because we know how terrifying the beast is at this point, but I love how cute Greg still is. Yeah. Oh, no, he's very nonchalant about it. Um, What breaks my heart is uh, the second half of the episode, it's nighttime. Uh, Greg is starting to become an Adelwood tree. The vines are starting to grow all over him like they were for Wirt earlier and how they presumably did for every other child. Uh, There's the line that finally reveals everything. You've been chopping down lost souls and children for years to light the lantern. And there's a really great confrontation between the woodsman, the beast, um... Uh, the beast offers Wirt the chance to be lantern bearer to keep his son alive. Son, uh, that's the um, the woodsman's daughter, right? Uh, to keep his brother alive. Uh, but then Wirt says the painfully obvious thing that no one ever thought was, "Huh? It's almost as if your spirit were in the lantern." 
<laughs> and then we get um, what else? Uh, we see the little glimpse of the beast once the light passes him. Terrifying. That we, it's terrifying. Like he looks like he's. Um, like, he looks like he's made of Adelwood trees. Oh, I, I was thinking Freddy Krueger and just like completely scalded skin. I mean, I. We can look at it if you we want. We could look at. It. I feel like I've seen stills of it, and I feel like he looks like a tree. Here's the thing: I've never looked at stills of it because that one moment where you see him is horrifying. Well, it's almost like I I remember the first time I saw it. I thought, yeah, I thought it did look like skin. I thought it looked like like a human skin thing. Yeah. But he's a creature. He's like he looks like he's made of wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like out of respect for the show, I've just never looked. <laughs> I mean, also, like, his head has branches on it. So, like, I don't think it's that uh, weird to say that he's a tree. That's true. If he's, like, made entirely of Adelwood trees, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, the other thing notable about this episode that I want to bring up is the music that plays when uh, Wart is comforting Greg and trying to get him up uh, out of the uh, roots. And... In the background is Greg singing something. I don't know what. I've always tried to listen because I know he's probably singing like his requiem, like he's about to die. So these are his dying words in song behind everything. And it's heartbreaking. And every time I want to try to listen to it, but then what's happening on screen enraptures me even more, which makes me sad because the music is beautiful. And... You never thought it would come to a life or death situation like this, but now that you know the stakes, like if you fall into the Adelwood trees, into the unknown, you become one of the forest, you become one of the people that can be destroyed for the beast. And you know that that means you die. You've given up. You've given in to the beast. So I don't know. I I want to listen to that little track that Greg sings, and I want to... Uh, like. Questions for Patrick McHale. Questions for Patrick McHale. Hashtag Ask McHale. Uh, what else? They beat the beast. They end up blowing out the thing. And in one of my favorite little decisions in the show, the last moments of them in the unknown is pitch black. When uh, you're looking at me quizzically. I don't remember that. Um, once they uh, beat the beast, everything fades to black, and you hear, goodbye, Beatrice. Bye, Wirt. It's right. pitch black and yeah. then fade up on them in the uh, in the lake or the river. Uh, being pulled out. Being pulled out. No, Greg wakes up. Uh, Wirt wakes up and pulls Greg out. Right. That's the point where he's decided to overcome it. And then the heartbreaking montage of them in the um, in the ambulance in the hospital. And also just like we forgot to mention this, but like it's so sad. And Greg is like kind of on the cusp of death. And he's coughing up leaves, and Beatrice is like, "Wow, the tree is growing inside of him." And Greg was laughing. He's like, "No, I was just eating leaves." <laughs> I completely forgot about that. Yep. <laughs> he's al- he always is Greg, even when things are horrible. Right. He's so true to himself, and it's wonderful. No, I just I think that was a really that's a really cute thing to like close the show on. Definitely. And also in the end, like the end shot you see of everyone, they're in the hospital, and. Uh, Greg is dancing around with George Washington and you can see a little bit, a little light in his stomach where the bell is. There's two things that make me think, uh, not even question, but like, or confirm whether or not these things are real. But the fact that after they wake up, they share the same memories. Uh, the bell is still inside the frog. And, um, 
all of the stuff that they talked about in the unknown, they both still remember and they were talking about. So whether or not it was all real, my favorite little line of narration uh, right here is, uh, and so the story's over and everyone's happy with the, uh, and satisfied with the ending. And that reminds me of like, (laughs) they're trying to like, um, tame down Tumblr hate for yeah. whatever may happen. So like people like, oh, they should have ended like this, whether or not it was real or not. I don't know. Is the, is the top going to fall down soon? Who knows? Like Inception. And I feel like <laughs> I feel like they were trying to like uh, uh, like prevent that before it even started. Right. Uh, which I, I thought was cute. But then they go on and say, but over the garden wall, all these little characters have their stories resolved. They're which all is, nice and happy. Yeah. Like, we talked about this earlier, but whether or not they were real, their arcs matter enough for them to show what happened to them. Whether or not they're real. Alison Truch. Brian Hamilton. Any closing thoughts about Over the Garden Wall? We just spent over an hour talking about it. Uh, We could have spent, like, six more. We definitely could. This was originally going to be its own podcast called Rock Facts. <laughs> I came up with that name. You came up with that name. I had uh, the uh, the name the Bluebird Rules that we were talking about, but I like Rock Facts better. We could we we were originally going to do like twenty minute half hour long episodes about each individual episode. This could have ended up being a six hour podcast. I think that I like the way that we just did it. Me too. It, it fits. It fits in more with the ADR ethos. Any closing thoughts on Over the Garden Wall? What it means to you? Where do you go from here? How do you feel about? further watching it i think over the garden wall is like in conclusion over the gar over the garden wall is what i think most art should be i think over the garden wall is incredibly important i if i was a professor like at a school teaching like writing or something like if i was teaching my own writing workshop over the garden wall would be part of the curriculum I think it's just masterful and I wish like more people, I th- I wish it was a common knowledge show that most people have seen. This is a show that if you've seen, you loved. And if you, it's like, if you don't like it, then you've never seen it. Right. Like it's not that people don't like it. It's that people just haven't heard of it. I just, I think it's absolutely incredible. And I continue to like, find new things I love about it. We could probably do an updated version of this next year and still have more to talk about. We're gonna, we've seen this together, what, five or six times? Yeah. And we're going to watch it five or six times more by, by next Halloween. Oh, more than that. More than that. Um, I remember you pitched this to me originally as Year Walk, like a very Year yes. Walk influenced. Well, Brian and I had just started dating when I saw this. We're dating? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, we had just started dating when I, when I saw this and... Uh, it was me and my friend Ellen and my and my roommate Jamie, and we were all kind of sitting around watching it. And I just, oh Brian, as soon as I got to episode nine, uh, I knew you had to see it. I was like, Brian Hamilton needs to see this. This was so right up my alley. Thank you for showing me. Of course. <laughs> and thank you so much for tuning in once again to the ADR podcast. I'm Brian Hamilton. And you can find me on Twitter at underscore Brian Hamilton. And where can people find you, Allison Truge? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Truge. T-R-U-J. Or you can see my design work at hashtag Truge Designs. And AllisonTruge.com, where you see wonderful uh, bits of your design portfolio. She designed the new artwork. Look down at your phone while you're listening to this and look at the beautiful, like, headphone film reel artwork. Allison Truge designed that. Thanks. Hashtag Truge Designs. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in once again, and we will see you soon. Yeah.
Stop it.